Saddles to the third series of the Saddle podcast, the sitcom archive deep dive overdrive. My name's Alison Barton-Simmons. Now then, I'm Ex Benedict. And we are here to deep dive with you the 1980s John Sullivan classic, Dear John. Yeah, if you missed our Christmas and New Year special, you may not know that both Dear John and Reggie Perrin both won the, the listener poll for what you'd like us to cover this series. And we thought we'd start off with Dear John because it's a step into the 80s, something a bit different, isn't it? It is. It's um, it fe- it's got a different feel to it. It really has, I thought. It it feels it feels for me more recognisable as TV that I watched when I was younger. Not in, not watching it in sort of like retrospect and as repeats. It's something that I saw on TV as it came out. Yeah, same mm. here. Because yeah, just that little bit too young to get the first the first renditions of Faulty Towers and yeah. The Good Life, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah. But it's um, it's often seen as I think we've even described it in previous episodes of our podcast as a bit of a miserable show. But rewatching it, it isn't really. Is it? it's quite uplifting. It is, and it's it's so funny. I I obviously watched it with with um child's eyes. I probably shouldn't have been watching it actually when it was on TV. It was like you know like that benign neglect of an eighties parents just sitting you down in front of the TV when you shouldn't have been watching it. And yeah. it, it 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 probably a lot of it went over my head at the time. But it's very funny. As a rewatch as an adult. Mm. You will enjoy it. <laughs> yes, indeed. As Louise would say. <laughs> yeah. Ordinarily, we do an episode at the start of the series that just generally looks at the show we're going to cover, don't we? We do, and, and it just gives you an idea of what we're about to do and what we're about to deep dive. But this time round, actually, we're not going to do that because our good friends at the Britcom History Podcast, Gareth and Alan, have already done it for us. You may be familiar with them. We did a... a New Year special episodes with them and covered Snavely, the Faulty Towers US remake. They do a great podcast, Britcom History Podcast. And um, they did two episodes entirely on Dear John, covering the production and the actors and everything. So we thought we'd just redirect you to their marvellous podcast for a general overview. And that allows us to get stuck straight into the deep dives right, right off the bat, eh? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are taking it, as we have done with the past two series of The Good Life and Faulty Towers, we're taking each episode one by one where we watch it and then we deep dive it in the minutest detail. So you can join us by doing the same thing. You can check out um, Daily Motion for episodes of Dear John. Both series are on there. And then join us for the deep dive where we will take you through it by the hand through every little moment. And if you if you can't find the shows on Daily Motion, we do embed the episodes on our episode notes page. And I believe that as of about 2010, the DVDs were released as well. So you can buy the DVDs of Dear John on eBay and places like that. In our episode notes page, you can also find a link to the Britcom History Podcast episodes that Gareth and Alan do that cover the, the general gist of Dear John, if you want to listen to that before you get stuck into our deep dives, then go off and find that because it's worth listening to. And they're very thorough. They uh, do a great job of reviewing old classic sitcoms other than other than Dear John. They do lots of different shows. They talk in more general terms than we do, leaving us to do the deep dive stuff. So we didn't want to double up, did we? No, it was, it was a pointless exercise when they've done a, such a good job already. But if you want to join in with us and hear about every little bit of, of the series, this is the place to be. Now, even though we're not going to cover... We're not going to do a generic episode. I suppose I just made a little sort of uh, bullet point list of things that people should know. Okay, that's a good... Yeah, yeah. If they if they don't go and listen to Gareth and Alan, and they bloody should, but if they don't want to, then mm. here's what you need to know, right? 
Dear John was written by John Sullivan, who is sort of the king of sitcom writing, up there with Esmond and Larby and people like that. He wrote Only Fools and Horses, famously. Citizen Smith, Just Good Friends. Although, actually, a lot of people genuinely see Dear John as his greatest work, and it's much underrated. Yeah. Yeah, it came in 64th in in the Britain's Best Sitcom Poll thing that happened about 10 years ago. Oh, okay. Which I thought was quite low. Like I say, it's never been repeated on the BBC. I think when I was I was looking just at the details with with regards to when it was on TV, and I think it was shown last on the BBC, something like nineteen ninety nine, so a long long time ago, really. Oh, it was repeated on the BBC. I then. think it was, yeah, but only very much very much after, but a, and a long time since. So it's it's not something that's mm. in like the in in the minds of of even like watching repeats of of shows on the BBC. Mm. It's just not part of that what you what you see with with regularity. Well, it, as you said, it just ran for two series um, because Ralph Bates, the lead, he actually died in 1991 of cancer, sadly. But there had been plans to do more. But prior to 1991, I think it was in the late 80s as well, it got resold and remade in America. Yeah. Judd Hirsch as the lead. And that ran for four series and 98 episodes, which is pretty successful, isn't it? It if is. Near in syndication. And they showed that in Britain as well. Now, I never saw it. I never saw that. But it occurred to me that perhaps when you said it was on in 99, I wonder if that was the Judd Hirsch version. Because I thought this was never repeated. Oh, it was on the BBC website, the old the old schedules listings, where you can go back and you can see when things were on TV. Yeah. And it was a, it was next to the actual episode that 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 we're about to deep dive. So I, I think it was. I think it was I think it was reshown, but after After a long time. I'm sure. I'm sure if someone knows, they will let us know one way or the other. But I, I was convinced that it, it had been shown again. Well, just briefly, we'll just just go through the, the main cast, shall we, as well? We've got yes. Ralph Bates as, as John, as the titular John. I like the word titular. Titular. <laughs> yeah, it's titillating. Um, he was best known for Hammer Horror stuff, I think, yeah. at this point in his career, which is towards the end of his career. As I say, he died not long after. Belinda Lang who's a great comedic actress and stage performer. She went on to do other sitcoms like 2.4 Children. Yeah. Peter Blake as Kirk, who was an actor all through the 70s and 80s and 90s. Peter Denyer as Ralph, or Rafe, as as, uh, Louise called him. (laughs) Talking to Louise, that's Rachel Bell. And then that's really the main cast, apart from Mrs. Arnott, who's played by Jean Chalice. Yes. Surname may be familiar because she was the first wife of John Chalice, of course. <laughs> oh dear, that was awful. <laughs> Have another crack at that. Yeah. My first wife. <laughs> oh dear, I've lost it. Oh, amazing! No, that was that was that was that was good. So there's a general overview of what. Dear John's all about, but obviously, if you want more information and you want to find out a bit more about the um, series, go and check out Gareth and Alan's podcast, which is the Sitcom History Podcast. The Britcom History Podcast. Should we get stuck into it then, Al? Yes, let's get going. Series one, episode one, A Singular Man. Dear John, dear John, by the time Now 
it's all been said and done, dear John. Seems we've sung love's last song, dear John. So as with every episode of Dear John, we open up with lead character John in his front room. He's wandered into his front room and he finds a Dear John letter on the mantelpiece. A Dear John letter is written, obviously, by usually by a, a wife leaving a husband to let them know that they've done a flit and gone and to sort of let them down gently. So it's synonymous with being called a Dear John letter. So obviously John is the John in this letter. And as he, as he's reading it, it just goes straight into the theme tune, doesn't it? It does. It's the most high-pitched theme tune I think I've ever witnessed on a TV show. It's pretty shrill. It's pretty shrill. It is. I was quite glad when it was over. Really? It was that, it was that high-pitched. Yeah, it made me feel a little bit uncomfortable and my ears hurt a bit. You know, like when dogs do that funny twitchy thing when there's a high-pitched whistle. It, oh, yeah. It was, a little, it was a little bit like that. I, I was going to say this is a good time to thank Steph Casey for doing our theme tune, but... I've, Coming straight after that, I'm not sure it is, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. it's a good theme tune. It's a memorable theme tune because it's one of my earworms. It's mm. an earworm that I can still be, like, doing the ironing and, dear John, comes into my head as I'm busy ironing. So it's obviously yeah. made an impression on me, whatever I say. And it was written by John Sullivan, wasn't it? It was. It was written by John Sullivan and sung by John Baxter. In the credits as well, we see John entering what we later find out to be the divorce court um, with his solicitor and leaving in the next shot looking decidedly bedraggled and we later find out that he's been thrown out of his home whilst continuing to pay the mortgage as his wife is now shacked up with John's ex-best friend, Mike. And that is, the, that is what leads us into the, into the story of Dear John. We're given that right at the beginning. Uh, John's had to move into a bedsit and leave his his his, his wife behind um, in the house that he shared with her. Yeah, it's all there in the theme tune, isn't it? Each week, it is. It's, it's like a load of exposition in the opening credits. You see him mm. get the dear John note, go into court looking chipper, come out of court looking, you know, looking absolutely devastated. Yeah, packing his bags and then moving into a shithole. That's basically yes. everything's there, isn't it? And then we're in. So we're we're into the into the the first bit of the the first episode now. And John's outside of a pub. He's having a pint outside, and he's met with who we find out to be a friend of his called Roger, who knows that John and his ex, his now ex-wife Wendy, um, have split up and got divorced. And Roger, it's quite an uncomfortable conversation, isn't it? It it, it makes you feel a bit awkward. Even from the even from the first moment Roger comes out of the pub, he spots John and tries to swivel on his heel before John yeah. spots him. So it's really awkward. He doesn't want to get into conversation. He's he's obviously feeling sort of stuck in the middle between John and Wendy. Roger has these these dinner parties and he's not been inviting John along because it's couples only recently. And he's saying things like, oh, you, you're obviously out on a, a night on the town, you're off to a club, you've got all the chicks hanging off you. And I, and I don't know whether that's something that he truly thinks or whether he's sort of making excuses for not being in touch and being a bit of a rubbish friend. I think he's taking the piss and it also gives him that... Um opportunity to to act like he's joking when when john makes out that he wants to come and meet up with him and, and yeah. all the old friends he's a bit of a prick actually this, this roger guy because he brings up he brings up the fact that his best friend was cheating on him 
Yeah, it's really horrible how he does it, isn't it? He, he, he seems to just irritate John by pointing out that he's surprised that he didn't hit Mike when he found out. How you, how you didn't hit him, I don't know. And John says, well, what good would that have done? Which is which taking the high ground. Obviously, John's quite a... There's like the strength of character there straight away. Yeah. To which Roger replies, well, he is a six foot two physical training instructor. And you just think, oh, what a knob. Yeah. Like, like you don't... Like, who needs Who needs friends when you've... No, who needs enemies when you've got friends like that? Yeah. Well, we get a sense of John's insecurities and proclivity to bullshit as well here because to cover yes. his embarrassment at, at his lot in life following the divorce, mm. he sort of agrees with Roger's presuppositions that he's out and, you know, with a different yeah. lady every night. He's just he's just a bit embarrassed, isn't he? So he, yes. he And we see this all the way through, actually. He, he, mm. he does bullshit a little bit because he's just... I don't think he's an out-and-out liar, but he just sometimes just plays to the choir a little bit. Yeah, I think every, anything for for a quiet life. Sometimes he just goes along with what's been what's been said. Yeah. So Roger disappears off, and Johnny's left with his pint, his dregs of his pint, and and the newspaper. And he's in open, a monologue. And he's and he's in a monologue, and he sees um, an advert in the newspaper that's laid out in front of him for the One to One Club, which is a club for divorced and separated people in the area who are due to meet that night and he and he sort of looks at it with a bit of disdain like oh gee is this is this what is this what it's come to that i'm now gonna head off to a, a divorced people's club mm. it, it was a lot more stigmatized wasn't it yeah you know he, he he clearly thought it was really sad to go to a club of divorcees yeah and in another another john sullivan episode where trigger starts doing internet not internet dating it was pre-internet he starts doing um like a dating agency thing in fools yeah. and horses they're all taking the mickey out of him, you know, yeah. how sad it is. And then Del, Del obviously does it and meets Raquel that way. Yeah. So I just think in the 80s, the idea of, like, putting yourself out there and saying, like, I'm actively looking for someone, is just sort of, like, not done. And it was almost like, oh, isn't that pathetic? And it's not at all. No. But it's just, that's just the 80s for you, I guess. Of course it is. Think, oh, God, different times, isn't it? Oh, God, do you imagine what they think of, like, Match.com and Swiping left and right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, things that things have have changed a great deal since. We should do that, you know. We should have we should have a a, a dear John version of Tinder. <laughs> Create an app to go along with this. And just swiping left, swiping right on Louise. And Kirk, Kirk definitely a swipe right. Yes. So so John John does he he, he sort of heads off to the one to one club, which is taking place at a community centre. And as he as he sort of enters, there's um, there's loud music playing and there's some people hanging about on the stairs. Mm. There's an interesting fact, an interesting factoid about that scene. Originally, if on the original series that was shown on the BBC, is longer than the edited version for the DVD and the VHS of Dear John because okay they played music by the Beatles in the original episode that once it went out onto DVD, had to be cut. So there was, at the start of that scene and at the end of that scene, there was music playing. And if uh, the subtitles still show that Day Tripper is playing. Oh, yeah. But it wasn't actually... You're not, you're not able to hear it on the on the VHS and DVD versions of it because it had to be cut because the Beatles were just nightmares like that. Paul McCartney got litigious to fucking jump yeah. to a prick, did he? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's hardly representative of the music of the time anyway, was it? I know it's quite an odd choice that I think really yeah. um, but the music that was replaced it's like it's just kind of like um generic rock music that you hear as as they as he walks in and this ganger on the stairs and then he 
goes up the corridor to try and find where this one-to-one meeting is and he peers through a window and goes into what he thinks is the one-to-one club and um, there's a group of people sat around there's somebody that looks like they're in charge and he goes in and he and he takes a seat along with another new member to this club called clive mm. <laughs> and it's obvious very soon that john's not got into the one-to-one club meeting He's wandered into an AA meeting and he's sat amongst a lot of alcoholics. If you'd like to introduce yourselves. I've already spoken with Clive about this, so I think it's better if he goes first. Fine. (laughs) Good evening. Uh, My name's Clive and... and... I'm a alcoholic. It's brilliant how this plays out. Clive, he stands up and he and he and he says the classic AA line, but he says it. Yeah. I don't know that West Indian sort of thing where he says, "I'm a alcoholic." <laughs> yeah. John's face is like, "Oh my God, what have I done?" So when when he stands up, um, he's encouraged to sort of do the same, and he stands up and he says, "My name's John, and I'm in the wrong room," which really made me laugh. I thought it was really really well delivered. But then the, the misunderstanding farce continues, doesn't it? With the group thinking he's just reticent to talk about his alcoholism. Yeah, that he's just embarrassed, um, and she won't let him leave until he explains. But she says his breath, his breath gives him away <laughs> as an alcoholic. <laughs> That's a kick in the balls, isn't it? It is, isn't it? So he, he he manages to get himself out of the out of the AA meeting and finds what he then think realizes is the one to one club. But as he leaves as he leaves the AA meeting, he bangs his head against the wall. It's this bit of weird. He bangs his head against the wall. Three times. That's his like a Yeah. He hasn't got I mean there's a lot of catchphrases in this actually, but he hasn't got one. But his the closest thing he has, I suppose, to like a trope is the head bang. Yeah, he, he headbutts the wall in frustration a lot, which is kind of mental, isn't it? Little bit. Well, that's what his landlady realizes. Obviously, we'll see her later on in in, in the episodes. But there's yeah. a yeah, she thinks he's like he needs he needs psychiatric help. I think doesn't she, she thinks he's a crazy person. She does. That's exactly what she says. When she when he leaves the a, a meeting as well, though he um, he says, "Well, I'm really sorry, but I, I looked through the window and you look like divorced people." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is a great line, isn't it? Uh, the, the group are still on the stairs listening to the rock music and then he, he does like weird peace fingers with his hands as well. It's like a really awkward sort of uh, back and forth between this group and, and John and they just stare at him. They don't even acknowledge him. They just look at him like, what are you doing? Well, John, I mean, he's an awkward character, but even down, to the way, even down to the way he's dressed with his sort of big coat, which is a bit Mac-like yeah. and his yeah. hair, he's like a prototype Roy Cropper, isn't he? He is very much so. I I re- remember thinking when I saw Roy Cropper on Coronation Street that that it was it was the John character that he reminded me of, like that socially awkward, mm. dressed in dressed quite dated. There was just something a bit unusual about him. Mm. Yeah, I think he's 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 probably. Well, I, don't know, I was going to say he's more handsome than the guy who plays. Yeah. Roy Cropper, but there's nothing wrong with the guy who plays Roy Cropper, is there? No, he's quite he's quite <laughs> handsome in, in in real life when he's not cropperized. I think he's um. He's, he's quite handsome. So as he's trying to make his escape from, from the um, AA group, he bumps into Louise, who is who is the woman that runs the one-to-one club. And she remembers him from earlier on in the day where they spoke on the telephone and she sort of guides him into the into the meeting. Yeah, reluctantly, yeah. She's a bit of like a, a, what, your archetypal 80s yuppie. A lot of yars. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I mean, of of all the characters, she's the one who's got the most recurring sort of tropes and catchphrases, isn't she? She has, yeah, yeah, which we will hear more about later on because she's, I think she's quite a comical character. I quite like it, and the actress plays it really well. I think she's fab. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Yes, I, I'm John. Well, come in. Don't be such a big baby. Not going to bite you yet. <laughs> Relax, okay? We're all in the same boat, so join the crew, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the meeting, John meets Kirk straight away. Kirk, St. Moritz, who makes a beeline for John because he's trying to sort of set John up as his wingman, Mm. which is ironic considering this is a group for divorced people. Kirk is literally just trying to get his end away from the, the start. And he wants someone that can help him to drive to a Cambodian restaurant in Ealing with two skirts, that's how he refers to women, skirts that he picks up for the yeah. meeting in John's car. And as soon as John says that he doesn't have a car, Kirk just packs it in and moves on to somebody else. He's not interested anymore. Yeah, he's, um, I think, as well as, as skirts, as skirt, he also refers to them as chicks, doesn't he? And chicks, yeah. He, he's basically looking to clean up. He describes it as Frustration Boulevard. Oh, that's why he's yes. there but he also he's, he says look at the competition and he points out Ralph and he describes him as the cat with the out of order sign on his eyes which is another <laughs> great line that's a good description oh bless him um, and I'll, obviously I'll, I'll refer to Kirk's dress later on in Fashion Corner but I will just point out at this stage that, that Kirk is dressed he's dressed like Tony Minero from Saturday Night Fever the John Travolta character Yeah, and so he sticks out like a sore thumb really and even somebody else at the meeting who um, is later referred to as Brian refers to him as staying alive, which yeah. really made me laugh. There's there's elements of the fans in there as well, because at some, there is, at some point someone says something about him and he goes, Ey. <laughs> Yeah, there is. There's, there's like a bit of a happy days hangover, isn't there? Yeah. Um, about, about Kirk. Um, so Louise starts the meeting and she asks that any new members introduce themselves and Kirk immediately stands up. And the way that... Louise delivers this line really made me howl because she just says, yeah, not you, dear. Because <laughs> she yeah. knows straight away that he's going to try and be, be in there. But she's already got his measure um, right from the beginning. Definitely. Brian then stands up, who is the guy that's spoken to John just a few seconds earlier, um, and introduces himself as an alcoholic. <laughs> and he's obviously done the same thing as John did, but in reverse. He's gone into the wrong meeting. Yeah, but Louise doesn't get it, does she? She just thinks... No! She just thinks he's share- oversharing. And, oh, uh, yes, she does, yeah. And, and John has to actually explain. He says, I've just come from there. And there's that, there's, there's, there's a stigma around it that you wouldn't get again. This is the same thing as going to the one-to-one club in a way. But yes. The the laugh is like he's being judged for being an alcoholic. Yeah. You know what I mean? They've, they've both just, like, both groups have, like, judged the other one massively, mm. haven't they? When yeah. it's, you're supposed to be there to be, like, helping people and they're just, like, massively judgmental. But while this is all going on, what I love is Kirk's just sat there grinning like a Cheshire cat. He just thinks yes. it's hysterical, doesn't he? He does, he does. Because he even leans over and he says, don't you love a good drunk? Yeah. <laughs> um, and Kate, this is the first time we sort of see Kate in action and she calls him a pig because she just d- despises um, Kirk right from the start. But she's very vocal about it and and quite, she, she I don't know, quite cutting, I think in the way that she speaks to, to other people. Well, I think in her story arc, you see that she's quite damaged and emotionally vulnerable. Yes. And, and that comes out as anger. And she's just angry from the off, isn't she? And it all gets yes, channeled at Kirk. I mean, yes. rightly so, because he's such a pig all the time. Yeah. 
But I do like, uh, in the scene, I do like Brian. Brian's line, he nearly utters and then stops, which is that yes. you all look like alcoholics, but he stops just... And that's like a callback yeah. to the earlier line where John said, you all look like divorcees. Yeah, really well written, that. Yeah, yeah, because it's just basically playing on... It's, uh, well, uh, other than it being a callback, it's also just showing that mm. don't judge a book by its cover, and we all do. Absolutely. Tiger! <laughs> Brian leaves, and as Louise is about to start the meeting again, four other members get up and go too, because they've obviously made the same mistake as Brian. And Louise looks at Kirk, hoping that he's going to go, but he actually stays. Yeah. So we're, we're just left now, aren't we, with the main cast at this point. There's Louise, Ralph, we are. Kate, Mrs. Arnott, Kirk and John. Yes. Louise then goes out to a car to get membership forms for the new members. And the group just start to sit and chat and have a bit of a, um, bit of, bit of a talk. Ralph mentions that he's got a friend who's been into hospital to have his eye removed, which is quite an opening sort of statement, isn't it, as a, as a bit of chit-chat? Yeah, I think it's a great opener, opening line from yeah. Ralph because he's, you know, again, he's another socially awkward character. Mm. A real sad sack, boring kind of yeah. ca- character. He, in fact, he's more Roy Cropper than John, really. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Personality-wise. and uh, Yeah. Might be, I mean, the thing is, let's talk, just to talk a little bit about Ralph, he's, his deli- he's one of my favourite characters because his delivery is excellent yeah. in all of his lines and he... Mm. I don't know, the tape on his glasses uh, adds to it the sort yeah. of jack, jacked up worth vibe about him and everything, doesn't it? And, yeah. Uh, there's pens poking out of his pocket. Did you see them? Yes. He's, he, there's a sweetness about him, though, isn't there? Yeah, there's a sweetness to Ralph, you're right. But he also reminds me a little bit of Michael Douglas in Falling Down with those pens sticking out. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, like he could flip at any moment. Could go any moment. That is, Yeah, that's true. So they have lots of... They, they talk a lot about hospitals and operations... And Kirk randomly tells the the group that he once gave a girlfriend a kidney. Mm. Uh, to which Kate says, "Would she not have preferred flowers?" Which I thought was a very cutting and clever line. But Kirk, we we, so, we soon realise that Kirk's always got a tale. He's he's always he always knows someone that's done it. He's always done something himself. He's he's quite happy to big himself up, and he's always got a bit of a tale. Yeah, he, where we said earlier that John bullshits a little bit. Mm. He just goes along with assumptions. Kirk is the other extreme, isn't he? Yeah. Billy bullshit yeah. completely. Louise highlights that the one-to-one club, when she comes back in with the uh, membership forms, uh, that the group's there to offer divorced people in the area a chance of company and social outlet. And there's lots of events organised that they can take part in. And she adds, you will enjoy it. <laughs> uh, and they're also here to offer in, inter-supportive counselling. In other words, where well, you, you turn up to a group and you, you, you talk together about any issues. So Louise goes first in, in the introducing part of the meeting. And she says that she's 31, which she obviously isn't. <laughs> the look on Kate's face when she says, "Yeah, I'm, my name's Louise and I'm 31. It just cuts to Belinda Lang doing this brilliant face, doesn't it? She's been divorced for two and a half years because her husband had developed strange carnal desires, which then she goes on to sort of explain that there were Polaroids involved, thigh-high boots, and then Kirk is flabbergasted. He doesn't really understand. So why have you broken up then? (laughs) What's the problem? He really doesn't get it. What does she say, though? Because it sounded to me like she said thigh-length leather boots. Thigh-high boots. Polaroid Polaroids, yeah. And a Volvo. But I don't think it was Volvo. Was it? Because John in a, John mimes everything to make Kirk understand. He does like a, ca- right. a little camera mime and he does the thigh, okay. length, thigh length boots, but he doesn't mime a Volvo, so it must have been, no. it must have been something else. 
she asks John then to introduce himself and ask questions about how the divorce had affected his son, um, which is the first mention that we've had really of of his son, um, Toby. And Toby, just as a, as an aside, um, is played by William Bates, who is Ralph Bates' real life son. I assume that, but I mean, I couldn't get any confirmation anywhere. Did you find something that confirmed that was the case? Did you? I did, yeah. So it's his real life son. He'd been married for ten years and he's been divorced for six months. So we've got a bit more of a, a rounded background there to to John right. in just those few short lines. He, he does say that he's, he's quite worried about his son becoming psychotic because he pulls the legs off spiders, which Louise says, well, you know, young boys do things like that. And then John confirms that it's actually with his teeth that he's doing this. <laughs> so he's, he's a bit concerned that his son's losing the plot a little bit. Yeah. But this exposition, though, of how John was the last to know and all his yeah. friends sniggering behind his back. He spent half his life so sad. checking his flies because people were laughing. I just thought, oh, this is tragic, isn't it? Isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Kurt asks why he left her, um, and then John tells a story about how his wife's actually left him for his best friend, Mike. He'd taken pity on him. He'd just moved to the area, and John had invited Mike over for tea. Mike's literally got his feet under the table a bit too much. Um, everyone else knew, and John didn't. And he thought they were happy. He thought they were happily married, which is just it just sounds really sad and a shame. There's a really great line there in, in amidst that story where John says, she left me for a man I considered to be my best friend. And Kate says, why? He said, oh, we used to hang out together and go to the pub. <laughs> oh, sorry, you mean why, why, did, why did she leave me? <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. His, his, his delivery of, of really subtle lines is, is superb. Yeah. And there's another one just coming up, isn't there, where, where uh, Kirk says, are you still in touch with your wife? And he says, only by check. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Louise asks, this is one of the first times that she asks it, any sexual problems? This crops up, this line crops up throughout the series. Uh, she's very interested. She's very, very interested in sexual problems, which John brushes off. But then he he shows that he's really upset about it because he, 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 you can see him getting quite angry about it when he's talking. Ralph has a fact about certain tribes letting the dinner guests sleep with their wives um, as if that makes it all all right. Certain tribes on the island of Sarawak think it polite to allow their dinner guests to sleep with their wives. <laughs> well, they must be bloody stupid then. <laughs> Anyway, I lived in Isleworth, Ralph. I'm just saying, that's all. Are you still in touch with your wife? Only by check. <laughs> Louise then moves on to Kate and gets Kate to introduce herself, but she doesn't really want to. Uh, Louise asks if there were any sexual problems yeah. <laughs> again. Straight off she's the desperate for someone. Please, someone have sexual problems. You can see that frisson run through her like she's really excited to hear about sexual Absolutely. problems. Absolutely. Dirty cow. So she quickly moves on to Ralph, or Rafe, as she likes to call him, who was married for five hours <laughs> and was left by his wife during the wedding reception. She was a Polish lady, and Kirk says that he thinks that she might have only married Ralph to stay in the country, but Ralph doesn't agree with that. He's very hurt by it, isn't he? Cause he is, the thought of that. The Home Office wanted to deport her, yeah. and everyone else is reading the situation, but Kirk's got no tact whatsoever, so he just comes out and says it. Yeah. Just makes it very clear by saying, well, you shouldn't be upset over an ugly commie chick. Yeah. <laughs> he yikes. Hey, you know here, though, mar- the, uh, Ralph says the marriage wasn't consummated. And I know I'm nitp- nitpicking, but won't that annul, yeah. annul the marriage? 
it, well, it should do, shouldn't it? I thought that's. I thought that was um, a deal breaker. But don't you think that's a really archaic rule? I think it might even still be the case. That you've got to have sex in order to still be married. Yeah, that's mad, isn't it? Mm. That's just something I think is a bit, little bit um, prehistoric, really, as a rule. What if you? What if you're an asexual married couple? Yeah, there's plenty of them. What do you do then? Yeah. Maybe they could just soften the rules so that, like, a finger in or a or a hand job or something. <laughs> just, just something that's yeah. Imagine that in a high court or something. Did you finger her on the night of the wedding? <laughs> yes. Changes need to be made anyway. Uh, Kate, Kate shouts at Kirk for this, which is an, another further disagreement between those characters. And Louise asks again if there were any sexual problems. <laughs> Kirk adds then that his wife left him because she had insane jealousy. And Louise goes on to ask if there were sexual problems again, but she stops herself before she gets into it because I think she's thinking, oh my God, like if I... Don't want to know, yeah. Not with yeah. this guy. But, but Kirk That's says... kind of worms. Kirk says, this chick's mo- known more dirt than Linda Lovelace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. John asks Ralph if he and his wife had had sex before the marriage and he checks with Louise that it's all right to ask these questions and Louise openly advises it quite quite happily. She, yeah, yeah any any addition to the conversation about sex and she's she's well into that. The group's then, it's been wound up. Um, Louise says that the, the group must finish at half past nine but the, the, the guys that are there want to sort of carry on. They're quite happy and the... Um, they want to help Ralph, obviously, because they've not finished. Mm. Mrs Arnott who has been quiet throughout the meeting, then stands up and says out of the blue that her husband used to dress up as a gladiator and make her play hoopla with ring donuts. Mm. And the the group just look absolutely aghast. But Louise suggests then that they can carry on for five minutes because obviously she can ask the question, were there any sexual problems? Yeah. And perhaps get an answer from that. Poor Mrs Arnott. And then the episode, episode one, then comes to an end. Seems we've sung love's last song, dear John. I think this episode sets the scene so nicely. In it, oh, it does, doesn't it? It's it's it almost should be like on the syllabus for sitcom writing one hundred and one. You know, there's a ma- yeah. master of the craft there setting the scene, introduces all the characters to us, solid exposition. All the characters are believable, aren't they? It feels very real. It feels like you you could, you could know those people. Yeah, and none of it's at the at the. He hasn't sacrificed any of the humour either. He's got all those things in, and yet there's still great dialogue and gags with misunderstandings and. Yeah. You know, I think it's just a perfect. Um, I don't know if it was a pilot. I don't know if it was just commissioned as a series straight away. But right. If you were writing a pilot, I find a lot of the time pilots, not only modern but even back then, they were lacking in humour because they were trying to establish characters, and sometimes they yeah. failed in at both. Mm. I mean, Snavely is a good example. God, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this just seemed to set the scene. Like you say, it had everything in there that it needed. It wasn't. It wasn't over the top. I thought it was very subtle mm. in the the comedy. It was very subtle and and natural. The way that people talk. And there's nothing worse than than watching a comedy play out where you think that, people don't talk like that. People don't say things like that. This felt very yeah believable and and real and honest. I call that Richard Curtis syndrome. All right. Okay. What when people talk when they're not. That's not how people talk. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I know Blackadder's a great sitcom, but anything he's done in the last twenty years, I mean, some of the films he's done as well, you know, like um, yeah, Love Actually, and um, the one with the time yeah, time travel sounds... with Domhnall Gleeson in, which is very watchable, but the dialogue's awful. Mm. British people, English yeah. people, don't talk like that. 
No. Shitting, 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 and all this sort of thing. Yeah, I don't... He always has really tw- yeah. twee swearing in it. He does have twee swearing, and I, do, I can't think of any of his characters where I think, oh, yeah, that's that's believable. Love Actually, for me, is... I, I despise the film. I despise it. Because there's not one person in it that I think, yeah, I know you, I recognise you. You are all made-up people. What about Emma Thompson? She's kind of probably the, the closest to a real person, isn't it? She, yeah, the nearest to a, a real person in, in that. But like the the Prime Minister character and his secretary. Just, yeah. No. Yeah, it's rubbish, isn't it? No. no. It's not nice. There we go. We might do Blackadder one day, but we'll try and lay off Richard Curtis if we do. <laughs> yeah. So did I don't know if we're doing Bric-a-Brac this season because we haven't really discussed it. Did you... Did you pick any bric-a-brac, or do you not want to do that this time round? Um, I didn't pick a bric-a-brac. I mean, I got I got one thing. Okay, go on. It wasn't it wasn't really bric-a-brac, and it wasn't representative of the eighties. I think it was more okay. more representative of maybe fifties or sixties. Okay. When it went in the community hall, was it community centre, community hall, or whatever? Yeah. The floor yeah. patterning on that hall was very oh, okay, very like you see in a lot of you know, sort of British social club, town hall type things. Yeah. And it, you just wouldn't get it in any new building now. And it, it was familiar right. to me because I've seen that floor patterning, the tiles and the pattern in 101 buildings probably that I've been in yeah. before I moved out here. But other than that, I you know, I didn't think it... It didn't even look very aged, really. No, it didn't. Because the it, community buildings now are still th- those same buildings. Mm. Not I not even had a lick of paint half the time, have they? No, they're still asbestos-ridden <laughs> places where you go and gather and, and drink tea out of an urn. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think there's much much different about them. And considering that was the that was the setting for most of the episode as well, the community centre. So mm. I think maybe yeah, I will I will I will endeavour to do one for next episode. I think we just play it by ear. Sometimes there there won't be okay. there won't if be. If you spot one. something, yeah, if we spot something, like somebody's we'll flag face it. or. Uh, <laughs> or a ashtray. Yeah, somebody's face. So- <laughs> Poor woman. <laughs> oh dear. We are going to do MVP though, aren't we? Now. Yes, I think we should do MVP. Yeah, good. Have you got one? I have got one. For for only for for her boldness and interest in other people's sex lives. Mine was Louise this week. Right. I'm getting a feeling it might be every week, to be honest. But. <laughs> yeah. She was good. She was good. It was yours. It was yours. MVP. Mine was. I was tempted to give it to Clive. Okay. For coming out and admitting that he was a halcoholic. A halcoholic, yes. Yeah. You know, it's very brave to do that in your first time. But, because he's only a bit part, I'm going to give it to John. Yeah. Because he carries the show, really. He's, you know, he's a, yes. he's vulnerable and pathetic, but still likeable. Yeah. Anti-hero. Yeah. And the way uh, the way that actor, I, I do think he was a much underrated actor. He comes across as emotionally vulnerable, but still... At the same time, he's still a decent human being, even though he's hurt. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? And he's like... I do. He's like the flag bearer, isn't he? He's the normal one in it, to an extent. Mm. You, you often get that, the normal one. I mean, it's certainly not yeah. Ralph or Kirk, is it? Arguably, no. arguably, Kate is also normal. But he's like the flag bearer for the show's juxtaposition between comedy yes. and tragedy, isn't he? You know what I mean? Yes, he is. He is. And I think that that whole tragic comedy... Genre. It's now a it's now a subgenre of sitcoms, tragic comedy, mm. and it yeah. probably wasn't then. This is probably quite seminal, in a way. Yeah, I think so. I don't remember prior to that there being such a 
character or a storyline that was that was set around like like a like a quite tragic and not sort of in your face. It was so so subtle and I'm trying to think of the word to describe it. It it wasn't like the in your face, you laugh at this bit, laugh at this bit, everyone. There was no sort of like arrows pointing to mm. the bits you were supposed to find humorous. It just felt like the episode was was so well written that it was just entertaining in a very subtle kind of way and John was the centre of that. Yeah, well, I mean, as a writer, John Sullivan did excel at that uh, intertwining drama and mm. comedy, didn't he? Which, yeah. again, wasn't really the done thing. I mean, it is nowadays. I mean, I'd be interested yeah. to know, like, I think of um, Afterlife by... I mean, we mentioned Ricky Gervais yeah, a lot. Yeah, I was just think- I was thinking Afterlife, actually, yeah. I mean, whether, whether at all he was inspired by that sort of tragic comedy thing that John Sullivan mm. did well. I mean, he did it later in Fools and Horses as well. You know, Cassandra yeah. had a miscarriage and there were some very poignant scenes. And... Yeah. But, yeah, I think it's it's not at the expense of it being a funny show. And that's probably yeah. quite different in amongst the Croft and Perry-type shows and the Roy Clark shows, you know. Absolutely. Let's have a trip over then, shall we, to Fashion Corner, which you must be excited to to do this week because you're now into the 80s. Fashion Corner, Fashion Corner. Fashion Corner, Fashion Corner. Fashion corner, fashion corner. So, yeah, it does feel very different. Um, moving on from like the, the mid-70s of The Good Life into the late 70s of Faulty Towers into the mid-80s now. And this this is, for me, this is like, I, I remember the fashion in the mid-80s because I can think about what my mum wore and how she looked in the, um, in the 80s. So this was quite familiar, seeing these people. I know these people. I recognise these people. Um, I'm going to start with John, first of all, who was dressed in like a Macintosh throughout most of the episode. It looked a bit, a bit on the grubby side, and I don't know. Macs have a bit of a connotation of, of like flashers, don't they? They flashing, yeah. You just sort of think Mac, and you think flasher. Underneath that though, with his with his sort of his, his wear. <laughs> underneath that. <laughs> underneath his Mac. Underneath. Um, when he, he opens it up and flashes dr- to us. Oh no, he's got clothes on, um, but he's got he's got what I, what I, I don't know. If I said geography teacher, no disrespect to any geography teacher that's listening. But an archetypal geography teacher in the 80s would have had on what John was wearing, which was a corduroy jacket. I don't know if it had patches. I'm guessing it had patches. Shirt and tie, quite somberly dressed, bit dull, nothing very fancy about John at this stage. Kirk, on the other hand, <laughs> is... The antithesis, isn't he? The complete opposite of, of John. He's dressed like John Travolta's character in Saturday Night Fever, which I mentioned before. He's got leather trousers wide neck shirt um, and a, this white jacket a medallion and cross around his neck bit of a quiff he's, 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 he's a really he's an oddly placed character because that for me is the dress of the 70s and he's wearing it in the 80s so it feels a bit like it's in the wrong time frame almost a bit outdated I think mm. um, but as we find out Kirk thinks that he's like the height of fashion that he's ultra cool and I think as, when I watched this as a kid, even though I was only like maybe seven or eight, I remember looking at Kirk and thinking that that is like the height of masculinity. That is that is fit. <laughs> Kirk is Kirk is in my head. He was quite fit. And watching it now, it just absolutely repels me. <laughs> Poor Kirk. He's not far removed from Mr. Johnson in that episode of Faulty Towers, is he? Exactly. Very very similar. Yeah. Um, and it even looks quite similar as well. It, yeah. It just 
I find it a bit creepy now looking back and thinking that I was looking at that and going, wow, he's a really good looking man. Do you think Johnny will listen to this and then come home in, in, in some cosplay tomorrow? Um, Get him a medallion. Medallion, oh dear me, no. I think I would, I'd be really upset, I think, if he did. Louise is wearing the 80s mum blazer. That's what I'm going to call that. Okay. It was a mum blazer with the turned up cuffs, shoulder pads, recognisable multicoloured migraine inducing print of the era. She'd paired it with like chunky gold earrings and a necklace. I recognise this outfit. I recognise my mum dropping me off at school in this outfit, I'm sure. It was, yeah, very recognisable. And But that, those jackets have made a big comeback. Oh, have they? In recent times, yeah, um, you just chuck one of them on with uh, a pair of jeans now if you go into the pub when you can go to a pub. Ralph, fabulous checked jacket um, that he had on, which was which was kind of cool. He's he's kind of like a, a cross between Mr. Todd from Wind in the Willows and Penfold from Danger Mouse, <laughs> I think, in what he looks like and how he dresses. Oh, crumbs. Um, he's got. Yes, indeed, <laughs> all crumbs. Um, he's got the glasses, like you said before, with the with the tape around the edges, and he's got a jumper, the shirt and tie combo. Even going out to a, a, a meeting like that, and I think he is of that generation, perhaps, where they did do that. We've talked about this generation yeah. in the past, where you wear the shirt, tie, and the jacket, regardless of what you're doing. You can be doing your garden, and you're dressed up to the nines. But he's a little bit dressed um, like like the generation before him, almost, isn't he? Yes, yeah. he's very old-fashioned, I think, isn't he? But he's, he's kind of cute. I do like his check jacket, though. I thought it was fab. Um, Kate is dressed in a double denim combo of elasticated waist denim slacks and jacket with a white T-shirt. And she takes the jacket off and she's got the white T-shirt and just these um, like denim denim trousers on. So she's quite cool. Mm. Um, I suppose it is an it's a bit of an 80s look, but I think that's that's something that you could put into any sort of like recent time frame and, you'd, and it wouldn't look out of place. Mrs. Arnott is in this floral pink tent dress and a matching pink hat. Do you know where I could see Mrs. Arnott sitting? Do you know where I could vision her? Oh, uh, would it be would it be the <laughs> Royal Command performance of The Good Life by any chance? She could fit into the audience of the great command performance of um, of The Good Life. Yes, with with the um, with Liz and Phil. Definitely. That's how I saw her. Straight away, she's got the face for it, she's got the outfit for it. She's always got a hat on, hasn't she? She never takes a hat off throughout the entire series. Yeah, she's very, she's, she's very, very neat and tidy, isn't she? And again, she's dressing like that older generation. Like She's probably only about 40. <laughs> she's that, that generation that just ended up looking like old people yeah. because of the way that they dressed. Yeah, yeah. And looked. So yeah, so that what that's the, the fashion for the, the the main characters that we've met in this first episode. Boogaloo. Talking of um, geography teachers and their fashion, mm. my geography teacher at school t- didn't really wear those clothes that you were attributing to typical okay. geography teachers. He always had a Christmas jumper on, like every day of the year. He w- walked around. And- what in like June? Yeah, he always had a Christmas jumper on. He was a really idiosyncratic character. And he'd walk around the school always, like, really busy and flustered. And you'd be walking past him as a kid, and he'd go, oh, I'm busy, I can't stop. And he'd be like, I didn't even want to talk to you, mate. No. <laughs> His name was Mr. Cope, which was ironic because he, he just basically couldn't cope. Because he couldn't. <laughs> he was he was just, he was really, yeah, he was always flustered and always a bit, like, stressed. Oh. And uh, you know the way in, in, like, the 80s, I went to I went to secondary school, eight, starting in 87. So you'd have been 88, yeah. would you? Um, I started secondary school in 1990. Did you? I did. Did you get put back? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> We're not so bright. I'm actually fifty. <laughs> no, that's when that was. That was when I was supposed to start. Yeah, right. I, I think I believe you. But um, yeah, in that era, they used to occasionally bring in, like, wheel in a telly on a trolley. Oh god, yeah. And then, um, and the kids would love it because it means, oh fucking hell, we can just you know, Dos basically doze off. Yeah. So he'd get the t- occasionally. He was a geography teacher, so he'd bring in something, you know, on a VHS. He'd yeah. stick the trolley at the front and put it on, and then usually, inevitably, quite boring, and people would be like just chatting at the back. Mm. And I always remember he, he paused the video, and he exploded. And he was saying, like, <gasps> so, "Some of us aren't lucky enough to have a television at home," which is just the worst thing you can say to a oh, bunch of like, teenage boys. Some of us are really looking forward to watching this video and we don't get to watch television at home. We don't have televisions at home. This is a real treat for us. So perhaps we should all enjoy it. And he bangs it back on and you just hear like all this sort of giggling. And then this kid is like always messing about. It's a bit, bit of a, you know, basically didn't give a shit. Yeah. He started going, Kobe hasn't got a telly. <laughs> just kept shouting it out and then pretending he hadn't said it. Oh. Poor Kobe's face went crimson to match, match his Christmas jumper. I bet it did. <laughs> but it's Poor not the thing to admit, though, is it? No. <laughs> Poor bastard. Oh dear. So did you did you enjoy that first episode? I loved it. I thought it was yeah. brilliant. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to doing the rest of them and just learning a bit more about them. And I think there's there is some character arcs to Kate and Kirk. Weirdly, less so John, and we'll discover as we go along. But he's he's just the the anchor to me. He, he is. Doesn't... He's very steady. Hmm. But yeah, hopefully you uh, you'll stick with us, even if Dear John isn't one of your favourites. It's worth it's worth revisiting or visiting for the first time if you've never seen it before. Uh, you can follow us at Saddle Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, where we post out rare photos and videos on Dear John, Faulty Towers, The Good Life, and more. We have a Facebook page you can find by searching Saddle Podcast, and we also have a growing Facebook group which you can join and contribute to with discussion or memes, rarities, or anything that you might find yourself. Subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, saddle.club, where you can also get more information about us, read our blog posts, and listen to episodes if you don't do podcast apps. You can also watch the original episodes that we discuss on our episode notes pages, or take our super tricky Good Life and Faulty Towers quizzes. Get in touch and email us at saddlepodcast at gmail.com, and subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Yep, and with that, I think we'll uh, we'll leave it there. We'll see you next week. Yeah. I'll see thee. Dear John, dear John, by the time you read this line, I'll be gone. Life goes on. It's all been said and done, dear John. Seems we've sung love's last song, dear John.